the court. All right. You want you want a clap? You want to clap, clap? Sure, we can count down a clap. Three, two, one. Okay, well, um, I, I don't really have a lot of small talk in me today. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Harrison Harden. I'm Maggie Greenwood. And uh, we are the hosts of I Did My Own Research. We have a wonderful, at least for me, palate cleanser this week. Uh, Maggie, what did we watch? We watched Disney Animated Studios' Lilo and Stitch. Well, I for one, I thought it was lovely. I, uh... Didn't think I'd get as much out of it as I did. Mm, mm-hmm. You get to set the itinerary, so please, Maggie, what do you have to share? Yeah, I was thinking first we would talk about kind of the development and birth of this film, kind of where it sits in the Disney lexicon and how it was received critically, and then we can talk about our watching the movie under this fan theory. I asked Harrison to watch it under the fan theory that is fairly popular nowadays, that Lilo is an autistic child. I hadn't seen the movie since I learned that I was autistic, and so I was very interested to give it a rewatch. It's a it's a favorite Disney film of mine. But to watch it with that lens, and I asked Harrison to do so as well, and so we'll talk about that when we talk about our own viewing of the film. But I wanted to tell you about how this film came about. It sits in a, an interesting place. It came out summer of 2002, so I was 10 years old. How old were you? Let's see, 2002? I just ran the math on this. I was eight, I believe. Eight years old. Eight with change, but yeah. Disney films that were kind of contemporary with this that Walt Disney Studios was working on at the same time were Emperor's New Groove came out a year and a half before this one. A year before was Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Then Lilo and Stitch came out, and after Lilo and Stitch was Treasure Planet. <laughs> Whoops. One thing that is kind of important to this film's development and I think success was how low budget it was compared to the adjacent films in the Disney catalog. This film had a budget of $80 million. Emperor's New Groove had a budget of $100 million and made $170 million box office. Atlantis The Lost Empire had a budget of $120 million and made $186 million at the box office. That's... Sorry, I just it's so it feels so foreign like it actively alienating to to hear these numbers where it's like yeah we made a profit of 50 million three times in a row and it's like by today's standard you would have you've been laughed out of the door or fired the fact that everything has to be a mega hit is killing this industry i mean treasure planet happened after Lilo and Stitch, yes. uh, and that had a budget of $140 million. <laughs> it didn't gross $110 million. No, no. I. It was a flop. I know. I've heard the story. It's tragic, because they were, they were churning out films. The two guys who made Treasure Planet, they are churning out films they didn't like. The two guys behind Treasure Planet, they're like, we want to make this project. We want to make this project so bad. And Disney just kept 
putting them off and like just work on this project and they turn it into gold. Work on this project. They turn it into gold and Disney was fine like, okay, okay, you've earned your reward and it's a flop. It was done by Clements and Musker. Yes, Musker. The people who were in charge of the studio at that point, that was, oh, what's his face? It was, um, Katzenberg was doing things and no, Katzenberg had left. Yeah, I think Katzenberg was out by the early 2000s. He was more of a 90s guy. He was. He oversaw the Renaissance. And then it was the the big money, money stuff. What's <laughs> I know who you're talking about. Oh, Michael Eisner. It was fucking yeah, Michael Eisner. Eisner. That's who was in charge the whole time that this was happening. Yeah, that, that guy... That guy gives off a certain type of energy. Well, yeah, he does. Anyway, <laughs> this is very besides the point. Um, Treasure Planet lost them a lot of money. But just a recap of those numbers. Emperor's New Groove had a $100 million budget, made $50 million. Atlantis had 120 made another $50 million. Treasure Planet had a 140 budget <clears throat> and lost them. 30 mil? Quite a few million. Lilo and Stitch had a budget of $80 million. And this film was number one in the box office, only then surpassed by... It was Minority Report, wasn't it? it yeah, it opened second place yeah. with Minority Report. But it made... It made uh, $273 million. Oh, 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 man. Okay, wow. Uh, I did not know that. That's... That's yeah. wild. This film... I think did exactly what what it set out to do though. It was written and directed by Chris Sanders and Dean DeBloy, but Chris Sanders, you might know him as the guy who did the How to Train Your Dragons movies. Oh. Chris Sanders was a Disney animator. He did storyboard character design, production design. He was an artistic director on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King and Mulan. And so kind of some of the later films in the, the Disney Renaissance era. He earned his spot. Yeah, he did. So he had worked on a lot of these Disney films and he created a character in an unsuccessful pitch for a children's book in the mid 80s. Michael Eisner decided, I don't know if this is Michael Eisner deciding or allowing Sanders to do his kind of this passion project, but the idea was that the studio would try putting out a smaller and less expensive film to see how it might fare against the bigger ones. Can you imagine anyone doing that today? Like, is, is anyone doing that today? No, they're not, not even a They're not. It's it's all it's all of the eggs in one basket every time. Every time, I mean Disney does this to this day. <sighs> they don't produce low budget things. Chris Sanders is quoted with saying, "Quote: We had seen an increase in complexity and the improved level of finish, but in the process, we had wondered if we had lost some of the imperfections that gave them character." Uh, talking about animated films. Ooh. He says, what about the spontaneity and the risk? Were we engineering them away? 
While we were proud of the films of our era, we all expressed a secret desire to make a Sleepy Hollow or a Dumbo, a small, strange movie with more heart than budget, made when animation was an unexplored frontier. God damn. Okay, story time. I was just watching a movie with my brother over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were watching the whole nine yards, and you no, know, that movie's very problematic for a lot of reasons, but god damn if it isn't well made. And I looked at him and I says, don't, don't you feel like a sense of mourning when you watch something like this? And he turned to me and went, well, how so? I was like, well, you, know, you mean like how nothing like this gets made these days? Well, yeah, it's like, it's like watching a friend die. <laughs> Where, yeah, none of that risk, none of that budget. There's no acceptance for something interesting. You watch a movie made in the last three years, and it's going to feel very homogenous for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy. So it's it's nice to see something like this where it's not perfect, but it's not workshop to death either. No, no, it's not. It has it has rough edges and it has heart. But this idea of making the film more of a Dumbo came out a lot. In the production, it's the first Disney film since Dumbo to use watercolors as the background art medium. Oh, good. I was afraid they were going to use the crows. (laughs) No. No? No. Uh, I must have missed that. I mean, Dumbo Dumbo was released alongside really high-budget pieces like Fantasia. um, And they both used watercolor in their backgrounds and were kind of sad stories. Like, they're not... I don't know. I don't know if I'd call Lilo and Stitch sad. Um, uh, well, okay, we'll get there. I'm really stuffing things under my hat right now. So Chris Sanders wanted to, to make this movie, and his original concept was just having an alien in kind of like a rural Midwest setting. Yeah, was it Nebraska? Was yeah, it was, like, it was Kansas, I think. I don't oh, know. It was going to be super, I don't know, very uh, Superman vibes. Well, I love I love that they reworked it, not just for the Hawaiian element, which I think is fantastic, works amazing with the watercolor backgrounds, but also the way that it shapes the narrative of that he can't leave, he can't do his programming. Oh, yeah. Isn't it nice living on an island without any big cities? <laughs> yeah, anything else about the production? The animation style is different, too because they didn't use the Disney house style for this film. Like the character designs are not, they're very much in Chris Sanders style. And that was something he was allowed to do. Yeah. I, now that I think about it, I I think I see what you're saying. The designs are more rounded, Mm -hmm. kind of simpler from a baseline. Yeah. They're softer. That's it. That would be the word. So I think the voice acting in this film is really, really good. It's, it was stellar. It is. I, I hadn't seen this since I was a kid, and like I was blown out of the water. Uh, the, the pathos, the, just the sheer personality of all of the characters, I, I just didn't see it coming. So Nani was played by Tia Carrere. She was a model, an actress. She was on, like, General Hospital and in Wayne's World movies. Um, She was born and raised in Hawaii. According to herself, she's Spanish, Filipino, and Chinese. 
And she's also a multi-Grammy winning Hawaiian music artist. Well, that came across. And then the man who played David, Mm -hmm. he was also born and raised in Hawaii. He's um, native Hawaiian and Chinese. And the the two of them actually helped the script writers make sure that the script had local pronunciations and 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 local slang. Oh, that Mm -hmm. makes sense. I I knew they did the the legwork. I didn't know that the actors were part of that. That's really cool. Which I thought was really cool. The actress who played Lilo, this was like her first big role. And they had done a lot of the recording when she was a little bit younger than when the film came out. I was wondering. I ran the numbers on that. And she was like 12 during the time of release? Yes. She was nine. She was nine years old when the rec- they recorded uh, her audio. Okay. I was... Like, she knocked it out of the park. It's just... I, I was very... I guess confused or or unsettled. Something didn't feel right with that timeline. Yeah, no, she was she was a little bit younger. So her name is um, Devay Chase, and you've probably seen her in other stuff. She did the dub voice of Chihiro in Spirited Away. I actually I remember that watching Spirited Away as a kid and going like, oh wait a minute, that's Lilo. She was Samara from the Ring movies. Did not watch those. Not a horror buff, I'm afraid. They're, they were a little scary. They were they were scary when I watched them as a kid. Yeah, I mean, that lanky hair. What, what kind of hair-washing regimen? She was in HBO's Big Love. Really? Yeah, and she was also Donnie Darko's little sister. Huh. All right. She's done a lot of interesting stuff. So in one of the reviews of the film by Peter Nichols, he's quoted as saying uh, about why the film had appeal. Uh, He says, Nani is a sweet kid trying to do her best in difficult circumstances, which makes her a young heroine for the 21st century in a story that appeals to older children as well as those who customarily troop off to these films starting at about age five. I saw that quote. Um, Hmm... He says, in the last few years, animated features have tried to cross over to younger teenage audiences with mixed success. Recent Disney films like Treasure Planet, Atlantis Lost Empire, and Emperor's New Groove have fallen flat. Lilo and Stitch, on the other hand, worked with adolescents who shared the sisters' concerns about security, family, and friends. I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong at all. No, no, no. But it's remarkable how... Okay, here we go. Let's talk about the plot. It's remarkable how that situation that's described in this film isn't really touched on by that review. Like, he, he's, he's making the point that this is relatable to, from the spectrum of young audiences, to early teens, to adults, because of the character of Nani. I'm, I'm pissed at his take, not because he's wrong, but because he's not like, yeah, it's like, you know, once you stop being a child and you live in poverty, it's like really interesting to see someone live in poverty and constantly get harassed by the state. I don't think that's what he's saying. The struggle that Nani's going through is appealing to older teenagers, but not because of the poverty, just because she's just a, a zany teenager. 
No, I don't think he's saying that at all. He's saying that the the story is appealing because she's dealing with real shit. Right. Like the other films he talks about, Atlantis or Treasure Planet, those have male protagonists, first of all, teenage boys or young adult boys, and they are like going on adventures, but none of the none of the stakes are grounded in reality. Right. But they're literally fantastical. And and that doesn't connect, that doesn't hit with older audiences the way it does with kids. That's very fair. I think the issue at present is that the thing that she's wrestling with, the mundanity of the situation, which is what resonates, is my parents are dead, I can't make money, and my little sister's going to be taken by Child Protective Services. <laughs> yes. I did want to point out before we go into the um, into the plot that this this film was nominated for the best animated picture at the Academy Awards, and it did not win. What did it lose to? Well, okay, I'll I'll give you the list of the nominees, and you can tell me which one it lost to. Oh boy, right. Ice Age. Well, we obviously have our answer. Treasure Planet. Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. I actually watched that movie. <laughs> I did too. I watched all these films as a kid. And Spirited Away. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Uh, fair enough. It happened to come out in a year where Western audiences finally, like... Watched watched a Miyazaki movie. Yeah, they watched a Miyazaki film for the first time ever uh, and we're like, "Oh, this shit's really good. Yeah, Let's give it an Academy Award." I'm not going to I'm not going to hold this one. The films the, the films on either side of that are like Shrek. Uh, and Finding Nemo won the year after that, which is a pretty amazing technical feat, I'm not going to lie. It, uh, it lost, but like you can't really get mad about what it lost to no i i was really prepped to hold a grudge but no i i can't that's you can't uh, yeah i can't I, it, it's fine uh anything else on the docket or we launch into the story and uh, um i was gonna say again i asked harrison to look at this film with the added context of neurodivergence uh because it is a popular headcanon amongst autistic folk that Lilo is autistic. The first instances I can find of people talking about Lilo being autistic are Tumblr blogs from 2016, specifically Shadowcat678 and Autistic Headcanons Tumblr were places that brought up these fan theories. Wow, you, you really dove on this one. Well, and I find it interesting that the film came out in 2002, and then these fan theories started popping up in 2016, 14 years later. And so the people who were our age, children who had seen these films, were now in their early 20s. Um, and particularly women who are autistic, there, there is a large influx of recognition of being autistic in about the early 20s for women, because they're often not diagnosed as children. Oh, I, I don't know enough about this subject to speak with any sense of authority, but I, I have heard that men are more commonly diagnosed uh, rather than women. Yes, that is, that is true. Men, boys specifically, get diagnosed 
earlier with autism. There are a lot of contributing factors to that, but autistic traits tend to present differently, and boys usually present in a way that is considered more disruptive to non-autistic people, and so they get corrected. And that's why they get diagnosed, because a lot of little girls learn very quickly, or the way that their neurodivergence is structured, they don't act out as much, or they hide it better. Gotcha, gotcha. Because of the way that women are conditioned in society, amongst other things. Um, And so they don't get diagnosed as often at young ages. Well, I also, from what I heard, I believe it was uh, Asperger himself, you know, Nazi collaborator, Asperger, when someone put forward the concept that women could have the mental condition he was trying to describe, no, 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 that's just a hormonal imbalance. Yeah. There's a lot of root causes. Oh, there are. There are a lot to that. But I find it so fascinating that I don't think it's coincidence that these theories popped up when... Oh, no, not at all. When women were hitting the age where where they were realizing that they were autistic. You could finally be diagnosed. Let's talk about the film. Rewatching this film, it's almost 20 years old now. All right, so this might be a little bit of a wrestling match in that I don't think we're going to disagree with each other. It's just that I think we're going to come at this from very different angles. I'm here to talk about poverty and indigenous people's rights. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a big part of this film. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what the fuck? <laughs> was... Yes, part of the directorial intent was trying to capture both the poverty and still the beauty of Hawaii. Yeah, there's... Damn, all right, I don't even know how to structure this one. Let's just let's just go for the alien stuff, which is fun from the get-go. The movie opens at a galactic court, and a scientist is on trial for creating a genetic monstrosity. They really are emphasizing in these accusations how abominable it is that this scientist would splice together some sort of creature. Oh boy. So they unveil the abomination and it's Stitch. It's our titular character. And everyone's viscerally disgusted just by his appearance, which is, I think, a little telling about the society of the Galactic Federation. I mean, they're disgusted by what he looks like. He says something and they're disgusted by what he says. He says something so foul. Two members of the council pass out, and a robot vomits gears. <laughs> and the, the whole time, uh, the mad scientist who made him, whose name is Jumba, he is delighted that his creation is living up to being just horrible he, and having this inherently destructive, disgusting he, nature. He is so hyped on the fact that Stitch is being Stitch that he, like, trips on nothing and falls backwards while cackling. Yes. I love he this guy. is He is delighted that his creation, who is indestructible, is has nothing that could stand in his way, and he's absolutely yeah. just made no. for destruction J- and mayhem. Jamba is living high off of the reaction to his creation. Jamba is there just to trigger the lips. <laughs> so. Jamba's thrown in jail. And 
the abomination is going to be exiled. In isolation to an asteroid, which is uh, a choice? I mean, he's too dangerous to be kept around, and we are shown how dangerous and scary this creature is when he breaks free. Well, okay, I I have a couple notes here. First off, we uh, Captain Gantu is the fish shark man who's 30 feet tall, who has been charged with issuing Stitch to his exile. Yes. Stitch taunts him, and Gantu's gun is big enough to fit over Stitch's head, and then a cork-popping sound is cued when he pulls the pistol back. I just... Ah, oh, a plus work. That's... It's very cute. Um, it's very charming. Stitch escapes from his constraints effortlessly. Well, he's very clever about it, too. He's just an absolute shit kicker. He's drooling, like, just to make a mess. He realizes that the DNA-encoded robots are following the drool, so he can use that as a diversion. And he's smart enough to do it. But did you notice that he doesn't do anything clever to get out of his restraints? He just breaks them. Yeah. No, he could have broken out at any time. And then he uses them as cover. Like, ah, A plus work. So this monstrosity escapes, and he hijacks a... A police cruiser. Also, I want to say I commend him for his efforts. He's just an anarchist fighting against the state. Oh, yeah. I do think it's interesting that in previous discussion of the story, Stitch was going to be like an outlaw. Yeah, I saw that. They decided to change it to make it more sympathetic for him. Well, I I think him being an outlaw doesn't work nearly as well, whereas this movie exists now as an argument against, like, genetic determinism. I think that's also very important, or rather, it lends itself well to doing a neurodivergent analysis on this film. Like, Stitch didn't ask to be made. Mm -hmm. He didn't ask to have his brain wired the way that it was. But it is. He is treated as an alien, this rude thing who can't control himself and people don't understand him. And that's why he gets along with Lilo. We'll get to that. He escapes. He escapes. He jumps into hyperspace. And on an aesthetic note, I loved the backwash that washed over the prison ship from his jump like the plasma, like space waves that cascaded across the face. Oh, I loved that. Just that little extra little bit of seasoning. The animation, it was extra. Like, they show so much motion, so much expression. Uh, so the Galactic Federation is tracking his trajectory because once he, he jumped unguided, so like, he can't control it. Where he lands, that's where he lands. And so they're, they're tracking him. They figure out he's going to land on Earth. And they're all excited. They're like, oh, he's going to land in the ocean. He can't swim. He's just going to drown. He's going to take care of our problem for us. And, you know, there's a big groan moment where he lands on an island. He's, he's going to land in Hawaii. Not the big islands, but uh, which island was it? Uh, they're on Kauai. So now hard cut to beautiful ocean. Wonderful song. Fish. Before that, the Galactic Senate hires an Earth expert and the mad scientist to go and retrieve Stitch. Jumpa and Pleakley, Pleakley is the Earth specialist, they're, they're a pretty good comic relief duo. Well, I love that Pleakley, he really is just that incompetent. Pleakley is very much so an early 2000s depiction of a lib. 
Oh, yeah. And we'll get into the gender politics of that a little bit later, which is a little problematic, at least the way some of this stuff is coded. So, yes, they've been assigned the task of hunting down Stitch, regaining custody. Cut to beautiful Hawaiian ocean with lovely Hawaiian soundtrack. We're down into the ocean, says Walt Disney Presents. We're on Hawaii. This first three minutes, I had to pause the film. Like, it took me probably 45 minutes to get through this first three-minute scene because I kept stopping it and, like, just sitting ruminating on how well they coded Lilo, how much information they give us about her as a character in this first scene where we first meet Lilo. All right, you got me you got me done to rights. I I didn't know what I was dealing with until her peanut butter explanation. So, yep. Preach it. Lilo is hurriedly swimming and scrambling to the beach. She grabs her little duffel bag and is just running frantically. We know she's going somewhere. I mean, at this point, we don't even know her name. She's going somewhere, scrambling in her bag, and then she stops. There's a tourist. She unabashedly stops, looks at this person holding an ice cream cone, this very fat, very white, bald, sunglasses tourist with a really bad farmer's tan around his... That's not a tan. That is... That is he's fucking scorched. I love that man. Lilo stops, takes a few steps back, squares up, pulls out a camera, and just snaps a photo of this person. No words are exchanged. This little girl just steps up and takes a picture of this guy. What I love is that she pulls the camera out, frames him, takes a couple steps back and to the side, pauses, then snaps the picture. Like, it's so deliberate. She takes her time to take this photograph, and then she smiles really big and runs away. Did you notice the camera flash was enough to knock the ice cream out of his ice cream cone? It did. It knocked the ice cream out of this poor man's ice cream cone. That's a powerful camera. I'm just kind of shocked you didn't get, like, rebounded into the bushes. But just in these few moments, we are seeing that Lilo knows she needs to be somewhere. So, like, keeping a schedule is something that she knows is important. We see how happy she is engaging with something that most people would think is kind of weird. She's taking photos of strangers. She thinks it's appropriate to take photos of strangers. She doesn't ask permission. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah, aren't they beautiful? <laughs> and, and she's very serious about this thing because it's important enough for her to stop rushing to do what she's doing. Well, that, that's the thing about the character of Lilo is she's so earnest. That's, like, three-quarters of her charm for me. She can be whimsical and off off the bat and, like, not typical. Definitely not neurotypical. But she's so goddamn serious about the things she cares about. So we make it to the dance studio, which is Lilo's destination. She's been throwing on her hula costume while she's running. Cut to the dance studio, and four other little girls are walking out onto the stage. The dance instructor is counting, and he notices he's one girl short. And from the expression on his face, you can tell that this is not the first time this has happened. This little girl yep. has been late before. Which sets the stakes, the stakes perfectly for her trying to sneak in. She knows she's been late before. He knows she's been late before. He knows she's late. So she gets on the stage. She's still kind of wet 
from having been in the ocean. The performers finish their little dance to the end of the song. We get to watch Lilo dance with the other girls. Immaculately, I must add. She's got talent. I would argue that Lilo is one of the best dancers up there. The other girls, none of them have opened mouth smiles. And Lilo has this gigantic grin on her face. Lilo knows all of the steps. She doesn't have to think about it. And the other girls have these concerned eyebrows. They're not smiling. They're looking at each other's hands and feet, like trying to remember. And Lilo effortlessly knows the dance. I didn't clock. I did not clock that. That's really cool. Um, all right. Uh... Now we're going to talk about racial politics, folks. They finish the dance. One of the other girls trips and falls because Lilo has gotten the stage wet. And it is the only white girl in the troupe. Her name is Myrtle. And she's the leader of three of the four girls who were already on stage. Um, But Myrtle is, she's coded as a bully. Yeah. So Myrtle trips on the water. Everything's a little chaotic And the dance instructor exasperatedly is like, Lilo, why are you wet and late? This is when we get to hear Lilo speak for the first time. Oh man, I don't think I've ever seen a stronger opening for a character. It's so good just to establish the person you're going to spend the rest of the movie with. Why are you late, Lilo? Well, I had to feed Pudge the fish. Lilo does this expression. She grabs her head and sighs quite expressively because she knows she's done this before. From this moment, you can tell she has had to explain her rationalization for absolutely everything. She is so tired of being asked why she's doing what she's doing and having to justify herself. She is exhausted and she knows that even this millionth time of explaining her perfectly clear logic Like, the things she's saying make absolute sense. People still are going to question her. They're not going to believe her. They're not going to think that what she was doing was important enough. Um, And we see that in how the conversation plays out. She says, I was feeding Pudge the fish. And he's like, you were feeding the fish? Yeah, it's Thursday. Every Thursday, I got to feed Pudge the fish a peanut butter sandwich. The instructor's like, a peanut butter sandwich to a fish? Yeah. Except today we didn't have peanut butter. And I told my sister that. And she says I could feed him a tuna sandwich. And Lilo's getting super worked up. Tuna. Tuna. Do you know what tuna is? (laughs) You can't feed a fish tuna. I can't feed Pudge tuna. I'd be an abomination. Yes, an abomination. Like she understands how like absolutely horrifying the concept of cannibalism is. Well, it's not just that. It's the fact she used the word abomination. Her vocabulary is off the charts in this movie. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, if you have to feed a fish a sandwich, like, I wouldn't feed it tuna. Did you know they were going to have Stitch kill Pudge at one point? Yeah. I'm really glad they didn't do that. I watched that extra scene. It was... It was hard. It was rough. It's too much. I think it is a little bit too much. Um, I think they did the right thing in cutting that scene. Yeah, I wish they kept the airport hijacking, but... Uh, we'll talk... We can talk about that later. (laughs) No, but yeah, Pudge would have been a bridge too far. Lilo said, I'm late because I had to run to the store and buy some peanut butter because all we had at my house was stinking tuna. 
her wreath of flowers on her head is askew. Like she's super upset of having to like impassionately justify her actions. The instructor asks, what, like, why, why does this matter? Like, why is this so important, Lilo? Because he doesn't understand. And what she says doesn't matter. Like, honestly, what she says doesn't matter. It's the fact that she cares. Like, she cares enough about feeding this fish. That's what matters. But she ends up saying, Pudge controls the weather. <sighs> Quick cut to everyone in the dance studio just being like, oh, yeah, that's Lilo, I guess. She's something else. She says it so sternly with such conviction. I was halfway convinced they were like, oh, fuck, does Pudge control the weather? I mean, Lilo's right about a lot of things. She tells her reason, like, this is important to me, this is why. And then the poor poor little girl's already super worked up and super frustrated. And then Myrtle, the girl who had slipped, very pointedly breaks the silence and says, you're crazy. And Lilo loses it. Lilo whips around and punches this girl in the face. Just starts beating the crap out of her. Pulling on her hair. Anything she can get a hold of. I love this moment for so many reasons. Because we, we get to see this little girl behave like a little girl. She's six years old in this story. I'm not saying that this is acceptable behavior. I don't think kids should be beating each other up. But to see it on screen. You can kind of see where she's coming from. Basically to acknowledge the reality. You get the impression that Lilo has been mistreated by this girl before, the way that Myrtle speaks to her. Lilo has been called crazy before, and she doesn't like it. She just spent all this time trying to explain her justification, and it, it wasn't good enough And so then she acts out in the only language that people seem to understand, which is violence. Well, I mean, technically she is American, so, you know. (laughs) The dance instructor pulls Lilo off and immediately Lilo comes to her senses and she apologizes profusely. She says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll be good. I promise. I just want to dance. I practice. Please, I just want to dance. That's the roughest part is. It's. It's heartbreaking. She knows immediately that she fucked up. She wants so badly to be there. And from her reaction, how sheepish she is, you you can tell that this is not the first time that she has been removed from a situation or excluded from something she wanted to do because of her inability to interact with the other students in a way that is deemed acceptable. Like, it, it really hits hard because she's so sad. And she says, I practice. And you can tell because she was the best dancer. Like, she really cares about being able to be here. She gets reprimanded. She has to sit out on the porch. She doesn't get to finish dancing with the other girls. The scene ends pretty unresolved. The other little girls run out the door happily because they got to finish dance class. The teacher comes out and says to Lilo, I called your sister. She said to wait on the porch until she comes to get you. Myrtle doesn't get talked to. We don't see Myrtle get told, don't say things like Mm -hmm. that to Lilo. You were very mean to her. We're not going to, you know, excuse her physically assaulting you, but nothing is said about this microaggression. That seems kind of macro to me. Yeah, it's pretty macro. Lilo doesn't understand why people are able to mistreat her. She sees the injustice. And this is something that happened to me as a kid all the time. 
I would see something that I didn't like or an injustice would be done against me. A lot of the times it was like fighting with my younger siblings. I would act out because what they said or what they did hurt me in a way that other people didn't understand. And I would act out and then I would get in trouble because I was expected to be the, like the older sibling or be more mature or what have you. But this idea of being so pent up and feeling so not listened to that you have, you have a meltdown because the stimulus is just too much for you and, and an injustice has occurred. You are so upset about it. The injustice that happened to Lilo is never addressed. Instead of waiting on the porch, Lilo runs after her friends and tries to talk with them and play with them. That's, that's the part that really kind of broke me, was the mismatch of expectations there. Yeah. And so Lilo interrupts him and is like, hey, are you playing? You're playing dolls? Because she sees them having dolls and mm-hmm. hide the dolls behind their back. No, because they don't want to play with her. They don't like her. And Lilo... She apologized. She didn't get a finished dance class. Like, she apologizes again. Like, I'm sorry I hit you. And all Lilo wants to do is just play with them. And she pulls out her own doll. And this is the first moment we get to see that Lilo is not as well off financially as the other children. Yes. She brings out a homemade doll. It's not just the doll, but she has so little stimulus available to her. She has created quite quite the story around this doll. Yeah, like the doll's head's too big and then she has a logical explanation as to why the doll's head's too big because a spider laid eggs in it. And this girl is so, so creative. She's so elaborate in explaining the things that are important to her because they're her special interests. They're things that are meaningful. And her her friends ditch her. They leave her. They don't want to hang out with her. Just because Lilo calls them friends, I don't want to call them her friends. Well, I'm going to use the word friends because this is a common experience held by a lot of neurodivergent people is having people who are your friends, but not understanding if they actually are or not. You don't know if people are being nice to you because they're like genuinely trying to be kind to you or if they're being nice to you because it's a backhanded way to make fun of you. This is an almost universal experience of having quote unquote friends who aren't your friends. That's fair. It's just, maybe it's just because the movie has to get the point across, but like, they aren't even being like polite. They are hostile. Right. But Lilo doesn't have anybody else. And it's not until she meets Stitch that she does actually have someone who is a friend. Yes. Um, I just wanted to make a note that Myrtle is absolutely a queen bitch of Ship Mountain. She is the leader and uh, she has the nicest bike. She has the nicest everything. Mm-hmm. So we meet Nani, Lilo's sister, who is coming home to meet Lilo. No, first she comes to the, the dance studio. Lilo's not on the porch. She frustratedly runs home from Nani's exasperation. You can tell that she's had to deal with this kind of stuff before. She knows Lilo will be at the house. She goes there and is frustrated because there's a social worker coming and Lilo has locked herself. Nani is in such a hurry, she doesn't see a car coming and almost gets hit, kicks the fender in frustration and keeps just beelining it because she has to make this appointment. She's trying to crawl through the dog door, yelling at Lilo about how 
she needs to unlock the door and is just being so difficult. Uh, and Lilo tells her, leave me alone to die. <laughs> because she is depressedly listening that, to a, an Elvis vinyl. The delivery um, of that line is so... <sighs> that, man, that kid could act. Um, but yeah, just mouthing along to an Elvis song. Nani gets the door unlocked and then sees the door has been actively nailed shut to the frame. So she grabs the hammer. She's trying to pry the nails out. And then the social worker appears. The very same person that she kicked the fender of the car. So she's off to a bad start. We're off to a bad start with the social worker. Nani is visibly frustrated with her younger sister. She can't get into the house. She ends up leading the social worker to the back door. And I love the implication because you see Nani leap over the banister to then go to the back. And it's not on camera, but it is implied that Mr. Bubbles also leaps the banister. Yeah. She gets him through the back door, or she gets him through a back window, lets him in through the back door. And so then we have this scene where the social worker is walking around the house observing things which the house is not in the best of states yeah no it's in it's messy there's caked dishes all over the kitchen there's something weird on the stove yeah nani accidentally left the stove on in the morning oh no she didn't that was lilo wait no i think i think lilo says yeah i noticed that this morning I thought she was saying, I found that this morning with the implication of, I found something and decided to do an uh, experiment and turn the stove on with it. I thought that was the more normal thing. So I was really surprised to see, yeah, I saw that this morning, implying that, yeah, Nani actually did leave the stove on. I thought that was a really weird take. I mean, I don't know. I I mean, it's, it's immaterial, functionally, but uh, Mr. Bubbles, the social worker who has Cobra tattooed on his knuckles. He is Cobra Bubbles. We notice he is Cobra Bubbles because he extends his hand to Lilo when he meets her to shake her hand, and she doesn't touch him. Ah. She doesn't want to touch him. We get the impression that she she's not about touching strangers. And she very observantly looks at his knuckles and out loud says, your knuckles say Cobra. She's very observant, and she is willing to say things that she thinks or sees. Well, it's like if I were to meet Cobra Bubbles on the street, the knuckles are not the portion of the body I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to be looking at this mountain of a man in black glasses and a suit. He's a highly intimidating figure. Well, yes, and that's why... Lilo asks him a follow-up question. Have you ever killed someone? Yes, just he goes for it. She just goes for it. And he doesn't deny it. <laughs> he says, we're getting off the subject. Yes! Which is... is <laughs> Let's talk about you, Lilo. I loved that so much. <laughs> he asks her, are you happy? Lilo very deliberately opens her mouth very wide in this performative smile. Like she she knows that this is the facial expression she's supposed to give. This is what happy is. 
After this gigantic smile, she goes deadpan and starts reciting like this speech. I'm well adjusted. I eat four basic food groups. And we see that she's taking cues. Yeah, she's taking cues from... Oh, hi, kitty. Yeah, she woke up. Um, She's taking cues from Nani, who's trying to like pantomime, like tell him you eat four basic food groups, tell him you look both ways when you cross the street. And it devolves into... A triumphant fist pump saying, I get disciplined, hand-waving five times yeah, a day. Yeah, so Lilo starts interpreting pretty literally what she thinks are the, the hand movements and charades from her sister. And she's having a good time with it. And Nani's just... She swoops in, puts her hand over the mouth. It's, it's not a good look. So Mr. Bubbles is fundamentally unimpressed with the performance in the home life and pops the door open, sending the nails cascading through the air through his sheer physical strength and then leaves. I'm the one they call when things go wrong and things have definitely gone wrong and uh, he leaves. I found the next scene to be really uncomfortable because I, once you pointed it out, and by this point, I was sold on the premise that Lilo is, you know, on the spectrum or, or neuroatypical. Oh, you can just say it. She's autistic. I did not like this next portion no, at all. No, and in the context, in the context, I think it hits a lot harder. So Nani turns around. We have a shot of Lilo in the hallway and Lilo just screams and runs away because she knows she's in trouble. And Nani chases her through the house. Lilo hides. Nani tricks her and wraps her up in a blanket and carries her into the the living room and opens the blanket up. And Lilo's throwing a fit and trying to escape the whole time. And Nani grabs her arm. And Lilo tries to pull away. Nani's asking her, why did you do that? Why didn't you wait for me? At the dance studio like you were supposed to. The social worker was coming. You knew that. And Nani is understandably frustrated. And we see Lilo struggling, being restrained by her sister and and not wanting to be held down. And Lilo goes nonverbal for a while and then semi-verbal where she just says no. And she doesn't want to look at her sister. She's avoiding eye contact as much as possible. You can tell that she is overstimulated and she doesn't like being held and touched. And and Nani says, no, what? You don't understand or you don't, you can't respond to me? And Lilo just says, no. And you see tears welling up in her eyes and Lilo doesn't know what to do. She can't articulate what she's feeling. And so she just head plants onto the ground. Thump. Man, that... And what I found to be a very enjoyable film that did, uh, once I accepted the, the context, the lens through which to view the character, that, uh, uh, yeah, no, I did not like that. I think it's a very mild depiction of what can sometimes happen. Restraint of autistic people, particularly autistic children, is a very touchy subject. It's really uncomfortable and problematic yeah i i I generally don't have as much knowledge as i'd like to about you know that portion of of life and and being and the moment i saw nani grab her arm i was just like no yeah it is an invasion of lilo's personal space she feels trapped she doesn't Mm -hmm. like being trapped she can't speak it's a very heavy moment 
And so after Lilo flops onto the ground, Nani lets go of her, and Lilo's able to have a minute and take a breath. And then she feels bad. Yeah. It's heartbreaking to watch. Basically, from the get-go, I I was just sold on that the concept of her being neuroatypical. So I was just like, all right, I'm in, I'm going. You can say it. She's She's neurodivergent. She's... Maybe I just don't like atypical. Oh, sorry. Again, it's... Oh, no, not good. I'm not going to go like, oh, the terminology is always changing. That gives the wrong vibe. It's still a developing kind of field and things are still coalescing for how people want to be addressed. So, yeah. I'm autistic. I'll tell you. We like to be called autistic people. All right. I, I can work with that. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking to see Lilo. And, again, this is setting the stage for the Stitch redemption arc. But to see, see Lilo become overwhelmed and make mistakes and then kind of sink into a sense of depression which can then spiral Mm -hmm. nani tries to ask lilo what were you doing why were why weren't you where you were supposed to be the social worker like this is bad this is looking bad and lilo's frustrated and the two of them end up screaming at each other and lilo goes to her room we see that nani in this scene like really cares she understands the stakes the next scene is her bringing Lilo a piece of pizza and apologizing. It's it's a very tender moment. The two of them talk. This actually had one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie um, where, you know, they have this kind of heart to heart and they you can really tell that they care about each other after what for me was quite an upsetting scene previously. Mm-hmm. There were a couple things I wanted to point out about Lilo's behavior when she's talking to Nani. She voluntarily tells Nani what happened at the dance studio. She says, I hit Myrtle, and Nani's surprised. She didn't hear this from the dance teacher because she had to go find Lilo. I hit her, and I bit her. And Lilo very matter-of-factly like explains this. She's 100% honest. She's not trying to hide what she did or excuse her behavior. She just says what happened. Nani takes it very well. She's very kind about it and is confused at first and is tender to her little sister because Lilo says they they treat me different because Lilo understands. She notices. She knows that she's not treated like the other kids. And Nani says, well, they just don't know what to say because Nani understands that the other kids aren't going to to understand Lilo. That's a running theme Nani's really the only person until Lilo gets stitched that understands and can advocate for Lilo in the right ways. So a falling star. Lilo needs to make a wish, but she can't do it when anyone else is in the room. So she's shoving not and I had this portion written down because it just struck me as so pitch perfect where Lilo's shoving Nani out of the room. Big sibling energy, where she's like, ah, no, gravity is increasing, I'm falling, and Lilo's trying to hold her up to get her out. Nani collapses, and then Lilo squirms out from underneath her and says, why are you so weird? And then slams the door on her head. Yeah. I've I've seen that before between siblings. When Nani's like, gravity's increasing on me, Lilo goes, no, it's not, because she knows it's not. Lilo's smart. She's like, gravity's not increasing on it. You're trying to play a game, and I won't have it right now. So Lilo prays for a friend and for an angel, and then smash cut to 
stitch on top of burning wreckage cackling like a madman. So that'll do it for part one of I Did My Own Research on Lilo and Stitch. Our discussion will continue in part two, where we're going to focus on Lilo and Stitch's relationship, the poverty of colonized Hawaii, and the separation of indigenous families by the state. Thanks to Max Bouton for providing the music, and thank you to you for listening. <laughs>